Welcome back to Partial Lab. This is Beth Lesh, writer at Aleph Beta. And this is Ami Silver, writer at Aleph Beta. And just a friendly reminder, if you have not yet subscribed to Partial Lab, do it now. Remember to rate us five stars. Share us with friends and family. That's my PSA. Now let's go on to the show. So Ami, today we're taking a look at Parshas Re'eh in the book of Deuteronomy. And I want to start us in the third verse of the Parsha. Because as I was opening up this Parsha and reviewing it, I got stuck on this third verse. And I want to talk it over with you and see see what you think. Okay, cool. I'm excited. So we're looking together at chapter 11, verse 28. Ami, can you go ahead and read that verse for us? Sure. V'haklala, im lo tishmu'u el mitzvot Hashem elokeichem, v'sartem min haderech. And the curse will be if you do not listen to the commandments of your God and you stray from the path that I have commanded you on today to walk after other gods whom or which you did not know. Okay, great. So just for context, what Moshe has said so far here is, all right, guys, B'nai Yisrael, you have a choice. You can do the blessing thing or you can do the curse thing. You'll get the blessing if you follow God's ways, but you'll get a curse if you don't follow God's ways and if instead you follow other gods. Mm-hmm. What's most curious to me about verse 28 is the last three words, asher lo yadatem, that you have not known. Mm. I mean, if those three words hadn't been there, would the verse be missing anything? Uh, not really. You know, it seems pretty straightforward. Only worship God, the one God, and don't worship these other gods. Mm-hmm. So what does the Torah mean to add by telling us, do worship God, don't worship other gods that you haven't known? Why is it important that you haven't known them? Well, you know, this is the first time I'm seeing it, but what comes to mind is that it seems to imply that the command to worship our God has something to do with some kind of relationship we have with God or maybe our experiences with God, something like that. Mm -hmm. So that was also my first instinct. But um, as I continued reading the Parsha, I think I came to an even deeper understanding of what this asher lo yadatem, that you have not known, might mean. And here's how I came to that, that understanding. It's because the next chapter of the Parsha, chapter 12, reminded me very strongly of another earlier account in the Torah. And when I read those two accounts together, I saw that they illuminated one another in fascinating ways. And I walked away with a deeper understanding of this asher lo yadatem. Okay, awesome. I'm excited to see. Great. Now here's the caveat. I'm not saying what you often hear us saying here at Aleph Beta, that God is the great author of the Torah intentionally embedded within this text clues, which irrefutably, undeniably link it to another text. I honestly don't know if there's enough evidence here to be persuaded of that. I'm on the fence about it. Although I I have been accused of being a tough critic before. So at at the end, Ami, you can tell me if, if you've been persuaded. And I'm hoping our listeners will also decide for themselves. But nonetheless, I think that this comparison, which I want us to explore together, I think it raises and it gives us the opportunity to engage with some really fascinating and important questions. Okay, sounds great, Beth. Okay, so turn your page to chapter 12. We're going to be focusing, as I said, on chapter 12 of Deuteronomy in order to answer this question that was raised at the end of chapter 11. What does it mean to not worship gods that you don't know? 
So instead of reading through the entire text of the chapter, because it's 31 verses long, um, I want to give you a brief recap of what happens in the chapter, just some bullet points. And you tell me, does this sound like uh, like chapter 12 as you know okay. it? So here's what I think we hear about in chapter 12. It's, these themes are going to seem a little bit disconnected. We hear that we should serve God, but only in the place that God chooses, that God's name should be on that place that we should serve him by offering sacrifices, that it's okay to eat animals like a, a ram, an ayil. The text specifically talks about an ayil or a deer, a tzvi. We hear about spilling blood as part of the laws of um, kosher shrita, kosher slaughter. At the end, we hear about not doing the kind of abominable things that the nations do in serving their gods, like sacrificing children. And then finally, there's a refrain, which is brought three times in this chapter, to do what is yashar, what is good and straight in God's eyes. I mean, does that accord with, uh, with chapter 12 uh, as you know it? Seems like a pretty good summary, yeah. Okay, all right, so here we go. I'm going to read that list one more time. And as I read it, ask yourself what comes to mind. What other account from the Torah are you reminded of, okay? Okay, let's go. Serve God, but only in the one place that God chooses. God's name should be on that place. Serve him by offering sacrifices, olos. It's okay to eat animals like a, an ayil or a tzvi. The spilling of blood, sacrificing children, and doing what's right in God's eyes. Ami, does anything come to mind for you? Well, Beth, there are a few things floating in my mind, but the closest association that came to me was the Akedah, um, the Binding of Isaac. Is this the direction you're thinking in? That's exactly what I was thinking. This for me is all about the Akedah. Serving God. Was the Akedah about serving God? It sure was. God asked Abraham to go do this pretty wild thing for him. Right. The place that God chooses. What's that all about? Where do we see that in the Akedah? Well, God basically said to, to Abraham, go to this mountain that I'm going to show you at one specific place. And at the end of the uh, account of the Akedah, that mountain gets a very significant name and some kind of foreshadowing of what it's going to be in the future as well. Mm -hmm. And actually, the connection goes even deeper than that, because in Parshas Re'eh, God says, I want you to serve me in only one place. And what's that one place? the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. And according to our tradition, Mount Moriah, where the Binding of Isaac took place, is actually the Makom HaMikdash. It is the place where all future sacrifices are going to mm -hmm. take place uh, when the temple is built. Exactly. And it's not just according to our tradition. It's it's Pshat in the Tanakh. The term um, Har HaMoriah comes up in two places. It comes up at the, at the beginning of the Torah in Genesis, and it comes up at the very end of the Torah in Chronicles and Divrei Hayamim. Mm. And uh, the Torah tells us that King Shlomo built the Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim at Har HaMoriah. Um, those are the, the two times that we hear about it. Mm. So exactly. The Akedah is about Avraham serving God in the one place that God will choose. And there was a first time that God chose that place. It was when he chose it for Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now, Re'e also talks about God's name being put on that place. I mean, there is a time in the Akedah when God's name is put on that place. And here's the time. Come with me to look at the Akedah. What do you see in verse 14 that reminds you of God's name being put on that, that one place? Vayikra Abraham et Shem HaMakom Hahu Hashem Yir'eh. And Abraham called the name of that place, God will see. Hashem Yir'eh, God will view, God will see. Exactly. So literally the name of God, Hashem, is being put on the place. Just as in Deuteronomy, God says, I'm going to put my name on that place, that one place. 
Right. Abraham actually names the mountain after God. Exactly. Let's move on to the next item on our bullet list. Obviously, in the Akedah, God is served through sacrifice, and not just any sacrifice, but a certain kind of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. What kind of sacrifice is featured in the Akedah? So God tells Abraham, make Yitzchak in Ola, a um, burnt offering, something that's going to be totally consumed and, and, and elevated. Exactly. And Ola, Olos, is the prime example of an offering which is brought in Parshas Re'eh through which we should serve God. So we've got serving God in the place that God chooses. His name should be there. We should serve him through Olos, through sacrifices. What about an Ayil or a Tzvi? Do we hear anything about a ram or a deer in the story of the Akeda? Okay, so we certainly hear about one very significant ram, right? Just as Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac, the angel comes and says, don't touch your son. Abraham lifts his eyes up and sees that there is a isle, a ram, stuck over there in the bushes. And, and that's the animal that he sacrifices in place of Isaac. Exactly, exactly. So in Parshas Re'eh, the Torah tells us twice, actually, it's okay to eat certain certain animals. And the two examples that are specifically called out are that of an ayil and a, and a tzvi. And sure enough, back in the Akita, it was the ayil, it was the ram that saved the day. What about the next item on, on our bullet list? Was there anything that smacked of spilling blood in the story of the Akita? Well, there's certainly the potential of spilling the blood of Yitzchak. And I guess the ultimate consequence of spilling the blood of the ram in place of Yitzchak. I don't see the actual word blood used anywhere in the Akedah, but but is that kind of the direction you're we're going in? That's what I was thinking. I mean, what 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 haunts us as we read the entire account of the Akedah is will blood be spilt and if so whose blood? Right? So we certainly hear about blood spilling on the ground. Mm-hmm. So we've got serving God in the place that God chooses. God's name is on that place. Serve him with sacrifices. We've got the ayil, we've got the spilling of blood. Child sacrifice. Do we have any talk of child sacrifice in the Akeda? I mean, isn't that what the whole story is basically? That's what the whole story is all about. And then eventually bring the ram as an Ola Tachat Beno in place of your son? Exactly, exactly. That's what the whole story is about. And then finally, this refrain that I mentioned from Parshas Re'eh about do what is right in God's eyes. Now, we don't have that language exactly. We don't have that language explicitly in the Akeda. But do we have this theme of doing what's right in God's eyes? Would you say that that characterizes the Akeda? Well, we have this response from God or God's angel, which is, You've done this thing that God asked of you. And then later, God says, Abraham, you you listened to my voice. You obeyed my command. So, so yeah, it seems like part of the test of the Akeda here is how far is Abraham going to go in in doing what God asks of him? Right, exactly. And also, what is the space between what's right in our eyes and what's right in, in God's eyes? Parshas Re'eh says, don't do what's right in your eyes, do what's right in God's eyes. And that's what the Akeda is all about. God comes down to Abraham, says, do this horrendous thing to your son. It would strike any loving parent as being completely abominable. It's not right in Abraham's eyes, and yet somehow he says, but it's right somehow in God's eyes, and therefore I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what's right in God's eyes. Mm -hmm. So Beth, this is really fascinating. And as we're looking at these two texts together, I've got one more common theme to throw your way. Awesome. Awesome. Tell me, what do you got? So over in Parshat Re'eh, look at verse 21. Ki yirchak mimcha hamakom asher yivchar Hashem lokecha lasum shmosham. 
what's going to happen when you come to the land of Israel and the place that God has chosen is going to be Whoa. distant from you. So now let's go back to the Akedah, verse 4. Bayom hashlishi vayisa Avraham etena vayar merachok. Avraham lifts up his eyes and sees the place from a distance. That's a really great connection. Yeah, thank you for finding that, Ami. I love that. All right, so we've got all of these connections. It really seems that when you open up Parsha Sra'e, at first read, there's a bunch of disconnected laws. And at a closer read, each one of these laws, every single one, seems somehow to be encapsulated in the story of the Akedah. With one kind of sort of glaring exception, and here's what I mean by exception. If you look at that verse at the end of Parsha Sra'e that talks about child sacrifice, what does the verse say about child sacrifice? Is it something that we should do or is it something that we shouldn't do? It is called a to'avat Hashem asher saneh, an abominable act that God absolutely hates. Exactly. I can't imagine stronger language to describe how God feels towards this thing, right? God absolutely hates the idea of people sacrificing their children to their gods. It's an abomination. And yet, back at the beginning of the Torah, God seemingly asked Abraham to do this very thing, this thing that he hates, to sacrifice his child to his God. So how do we reconcile these two things? Well, Beth, it seems to me like on one level, that question kind of touches on really having to understand and unpack the Akedah much more deeply. I mean, why would God have asked this of Abraham in the first place? So that's exactly what I want to do with you, Ami, because the Akedah has always been a haunting, painful story for me. And each year when it comes around in the cycle of Torah readings, I get another opportunity to grapple with it, and I'm never quite satisfied with the answers that I come up with. And I think that's part of the point of the story. I think it's always meant to elude our grasp a little bit. Mm. But nonetheless, this year, seeing it through the lens of Parsha Sra'e, I, I came to some clarity of insight. I'm hoping we can go through it together. So it's like this. The first thing I, I think which is clear by juxtaposing these two texts is that Parsha Sra'e tells us what God really thought of the Akedah. If anyone were to have come along and said, God is the kind of God who likes child sacrifice, and whatever God says goes, God is allowed to decide what's good and what's bad because God is all-powerful, and he may even have intended for Abraham to go along with it, and that would have been okay because he's God. So no, God is telling us, he's teaching us in this verse in Re'eh, I am not that kind of God. I'm a God who hates child sacrifice. I think it's an abomination. I never intended for Abraham to go along with it. That would have been hateful. So then as you say, the question that we have to ask is, well, if God hates it, if God never intended for him to go along with it, why did God ask him to do it? The text of the Akita itself tells us that God was testing Abraham. But what was the test? That's a great question, Beth. What is the test of the Akedah? That is a burning question that really seems to be one of the unresolved questions of the Torah. Like you said, it's a mystery every year. And it's actually cool because this is also picking up on some of the themes that Daniel and I saw in Parshat Akev last week. Like we think that the Akedah happened one time, but here we see in Dvarim, it sort of is like popping its head through. And it's like, what is it trying to tell us here? Is that test somehow something we still need to reckon with? Exactly, exactly. And I'm, I'm hoping we'll be able to address that at least a little bit by the end of this discussion. Now, a little bit of road mapping here for those who are listening. We started out here with a question. And the question is, what does it mean that we shouldn't follow gods that we don't know? Right? And I said to Ami, I think that if you read this entire 
chapter alongside the story of the Akeda, you'll have an answer. So that's our goalpost. That's where we're, where we're heading towards. Okay, you still with me, Ami? I'm still with you. And Beth, I, I kind of just want to throw in one more piece here, which is that the very Parsha of Re'eh starts out, Re'eh anochi noten lifneichem hayom bracha uklala. It's talking about God giving us blessing and curse. And in some way, that takes me right back to the beginning of God's relationship with Abraham. I'm going to bless you, right? In Lech Lecha, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. All of this blessing and curse language is also really evocative of the Abraham story. Exactly. I think that's right. The blessing language and also the language of seeing, right? The beginning of Parshas Re'eh is Re'eh, see. Mm-hmm. And we see this language of seeing all over the Akedah, right? Mm-hmm. So... I posed the question to you, what was the test of the Akedah? And I want to test out a theory with you. It seems obvious that on some level, the test was, will Abraham follow God or won't he, right? Mm -hmm. Because when the angel appears to him, the angel says, good, you followed God. My question to you is, why should Abraham have followed God? That is the million dollar question, right? Why should Abraham be doing what's called later an abominable act? I think any parent any just mm-hmm. human being mm-hmm. would feel that this is the last thing in the world that somebody should be doing. You know what? Let me pose the question in a, a little bit more of a pointed way. I want you to assume that Abraham did the right thing. As the text seems to imply, and as our tradition certainly seems to say, Abraham did the right thing in bringing his son up as a sacrifice to God. What would be a good reason for following God when God commands you to do some, such a thing? Are there certain things that you would have to know about God to make it understandable and justifiable for you to follow him? I suppose that from a religious or spiritual perspective, it could be something like, well, everything truly belongs to God. Even the child that I myself created and brought into this world, there's some kind of recognition, right? An Ola offering is something that's totally given to God. So perhaps just taking it out of the realm of human sensibility and violence and and all those things, it's sort of a real test of, can that most precious child who belongs to you, who you're closest to, can you also devote that child to to God and recognize that that he belongs to God? Mm -hmm. Now, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. This is not what I believe, but imagine that the God that Abraham encountered was, as you're saying, an all-powerful God, a God who had given Isaac life, had given Isaac to Abraham, but not a moral God. Imagine that God gave life to Isaac and then to play with Abraham, to torture him, said, haha, Abraham, I gave you this amazing miracle and now I'm going to take him back and you got to give him back to me because in a sense I created him, he's mine. So do you think that Abraham should give his son up to a God like that? Well, I guess if God's main modus operandi is being the God of power. So yeah, you would have to submit to that ultimate power. You wouldn't really have a choice there, right? Exactly. I mean, we might even say that in such a situation, the moral thing to do would be for Abraham to resist. I mean, he'd be resisting sort of futilely because he'd know that at the end of the day, this all-powerful but not all-good God was just going to be able to destroy him and his son with a snap of a, a finger. But nonetheless, you wouldn't willingly submit to that God and offer up your son. You'd say, no, I love my son, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand him and hug him until the end of days, and willful God, you can come and get me if you want, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that's the kind of response that we would have celebrated. Mm-hmm. For Abraham to follow God, for it to be justifiable for Abraham to have followed God, 
God needed to prove himself. He needed to have proven himself to Abraham to be both powerful and also moral, right? If God is both powerful and also moral, then he's worthy of worship. And then he's worthy of being listened to. That's my theory. Does that sound sound to you? I guess there's another word apart from moral that I would add there, which is loving. Is mm. God loving? Does God use his power in a way that's that's beneficial to, to the world, to humankind, in this case, specifically to Abraham? Or is God kind of just running the show and ruling with an iron fist. Got it. Okay, so that's so this is this is semantics. I think you and I are talking about the same thing and what I'm calling good, you're calling loving. Loving is a more of a relationship word, good is more of a philosophical word, but we're talking about someone who um, does the right thing, an entity that has compassion and an entity that aims to bestow good upon the world. Yep. It sounds like we're in agreement. If God comes to you and you know that God is both powerful and also good, and also loving, then it actually makes sense for you to submit to that God and offer your son up as an Ola. Sure, if that is something that I know. Okay, now the question is, did Abraham know that? Has God yet had a chance before the story of the Akedah to prove his power and his goodness and his love to Abraham? So it's an interesting question, because on the one hand, God has made a lot of promises to Abraham, um, promises about the future, about all these descendants, about land, it seems like the only thing God has really made good on is giving Abraham and Sarah this child, Yitzchak, who is the very child that God is now threatening to take away. Mm -hmm. Now, based only on the fact that God has given Abraham a child, Yitzchak, does Abraham have any reason to conclude that God is both powerful and loving? So I'm really not sure. And I wonder if maybe that's what the test was testing in a more subtle way. Can Abraham trust in the goodness of God? Abraham knows God's power. Can he also trust in God's goodness here? So I, I want to push you a little bit on this. And I want us to put ourselves in Abraham's shoes here. You're Abraham. You are 100 years old. Your wife is 90 years old. And since you were young newlyweds decades ago, you've been infertile and you've been yearning for a child. One of your brothers passed away. And since that time, you've been caring as surrogate parents for his son, for your nephew, Lot. But really, in addition to that, all you want is a child of your own. And biologically, you're well past the point where that's feasible. But nonetheless, one day, this God that you have brokered a relationship with, this God who appears to you, that very God sends messengers to let you know that a miracle is going to happen. And the one thing that you want more than anything, the one thing that no man can make happen, is going to happen to you. And it's not just a promise, but that promise is, is realized. What are you going to conclude about the power who promised it to you and the power who realized it for you? Well, Beth, I suppose that this miraculous birth, this gift of Yitzchak to Avram and Sarah, to Abraham and Sarah, I suppose that would show Abraham that God truly cares about him, that God is going to make good on all those promises and, and way beyond any of his expectations, God's going to come through for him. I think so. I think that that's right. And now I'm, let me push you a little bit further. As you said, what does Abraham know? God has made a lot of promises to him and the promises make it sound like God is powerful and good potentially, but few of them have been realized. But there is this one thing that Abraham has seen in his life, and that's that God has brought him a child. Is there anything else that Abraham has seen that would prove that God is both powerful and good? 
Well, but the other thing that comes to mind is, you know, you mentioned about Abraham's surrogate son, about Lot. And there is this very sort of violent and haunting story of the destruction of Stone, where Abraham is pleading for God to save the city and not destroy it, to spare everyone there. And while on the one hand, his prayer isn't answered the way that he asks for, his own kin, Lot, is actually saved from that destruction. So maybe that's another place where God shows his loyalty towards Abraham. I think it really might be. And in particular, I want to go with you to a particular verse from the story of Stone, which I never quite understood. And I think now I have new insight into it. Okay. Um, the story of Stone is in Genesis 18. So God is thinking about destroying Sodom. He's seen enough evil in Sodom that he thinks that Stone is worthy of destruction. But then before acting, what does God do? God has this little soliloquy. Exactly. We, we get an insight into God's thinking. He says... Should I hide from Avraham that which I'm going to do? Avraham is going to become a great nation. Kiadative. I have known him. He's going to do all of these things. And I have to teach him my ways, right? I never quite understood that verse. And now I think I see it in a new light. I think what's going on here is this. God is saying, look, Avraham and I are getting to know one another. Hmm. I'm trying to figure out if he's a good guy, if he's committed to me, and he's trying to figure out if I'm a good guy, if I'm committed to to goodness, if I'm powerful and, and loving. And if his surrogate son who wandered off to Stone, all of a sudden he reads in the, you know, the Near East news on the front page that the entire city of Stone has been destroyed in a mushroom cloud. What is Avraham going to conclude about this God that he's been courting? He's going to say this is an all-powerful God who sometimes seems to be loving, but then turns around and destroys at whim. On the one hand, he gave me a biological son, but on the other hand, he just destroyed everything that belongs to my surrogate son. So I don't know about this this God. I know about his power, but I don't know about his love right? I think that's why it's imperative that God lets Abraham in on the plan. God needs to explain to Abraham and use it as a teaching moment. Look, Abraham, sometimes a good God needs to create, as I created Isaac, but sometimes a good God needs to destroy. And Stone is evil and is worthy of destruction. And I'm going to explain to you why I'm doing it. And I'm even going to have this conversation with you to let you know that I'm thinking about every person in Stone to make sure that no innocents are being destroyed. Because I need you to understand that when I act in the world, I am both powerful and good. That's my theory. I think that that's what's going on here. And if that's right, then what it means is that by the time we get to the Akedah, Abraham does have reason to think that God is both good and loving. He's had a chance to get to know him. This is really fascinating, Beth, especially the connection between God using this language of kiyedativ, I know Abraham in this way. And then fast forward here in, exactly. in Dvarim, gods who you, whom you do not know. Somehow there, there was some kind of knowing exactly. of one another that Abraham and God formulated in their relationship that, that maybe kind of set into motion the rest of this legacy. That's exactly right, Ami. So Ami, I want you to hold on to that and we're going to come back to it for good at the end. So that's my theory, that in this whole Abraham story, the whole beginning of the development of the relationship between God and Abraham, they were trying to get to know each other and trying to prove to one another, yes, we are both committed to good. We're both on the same page here. So by the time you get to the Akedah, God is posing the following question to Abraham. Abraham, now that you know that I'm powerful and you know that I'm good, Will you stand by me? Will you have a Muna, right? It's like if you were married to someone, Ami, for 20 years and for 
every year that you were married to them, you always knew them to be a morally sensitive person, someone who would pursue the good. And then one day, your spouse calls you up and says, Honey, I want you to bind our son as an offering and meet me at the top of this mountain. What would you think? I would think, um, honey, have you lost your mind? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good, Ami. Your your moral instincts are in working order. Let me give you a more practical example. Let's say your spouse comes to you and says, Honey, I need you to wire $20,000 to this particular address, and I can't tell you why, but just trust me. What would you think? My basic assumption is that she'd have very good reason to be asking that of me. If she's asking me to really trust her, then yeah, she has my trust. I think that's right. I think that if you've been married to someone for that long and they have a track record and they've proven themselves to have a certain character, then Amuna means expecting that in the 21st year, they're, they're going to continue to act the same way. And actually, in Abraham's case, it was even an easier test than that. Because with Abraham's case, the partner in his relationship was God. God is all powerful. So if your partner asks you something crazy, you might be inclined to trust them, but you also might be inclined to say, Hey, maybe there's a misunderstanding here. Maybe they mean to do good, but they've made some kind of mistake. But you can't say that in God's case. In God's case, you have to come down to, well, God has proven himself to be powerful, so maybe there's something he's asking me to do that he sees as good, but I just don't understand it, right? It's all about this question, I know God, I know him, so will I hold fast to the knowledge that he is not just powerful but good? And that was the test of the Akedah. So now, having been through that whole roller coaster, let's come back to this asher lo yadatem. And, and you foreshadowed exactly, exactly where my mind went with this. God tells us at the beginning of Parshas Re'eh, I want you to follow me. I don't want you to follow other gods, gods that you haven't known. Ami, what's, what do we make of all of this? What's the sin in following gods that we don't know? I suppose the biggest thing that comes to mind in, in this context is it's kind of abandoning the whole track record, the whole frame of reference of, of a relationship that's been developed and proven itself to be, to be righteous, to be good. Exactly. I think part of what we're meant to learn here is there might be other powers in the world, but I don't want you to serve them just because they're powerful. You should only be serving a god. The only reason that that any kind of entity deserves your worship is because that entity is not just powerful, but also good. And the only way that you can come to know that is through courtship, right? Is by having some kind of track record wherein that entity, that being proves to you and demonstrates for you not just power, but love. And to go ahead and to follow some kind of power that you don't know, that hasn't hasn't showed you that it's good, what an immoral thing to do, right? We're, we're meant to pursue justice and rightness in, the, in this world, and that rightness is supposed to overlap with the power that we serve. We serve God because he's both powerful and just. I mean, for, for me, this comes down to what you picked up in the story of Sodom, that God says, key adaptive, because I have known Abraham. I've come to know that he's a just person. And let me ask you one more question. This language of key adati, this language of knowing one another, do we see that at all in the Akedah? Ata yadati, right? Isn't that what God's angel says? Right now, I know. I know that you've proven um, your fear of heaven. Exactly, exactly. I think that that's what these partios are all about. I think that's why we need to serve gods that we know. And I think that, not to oversimplify what's meant to be a haunting story, but that's that's how I'm seeing the Akeda now. God never intended 
for Abraham to sacrifice his son. And you want to know what? Not just that, Ami. The question that I think we always ask at Shabbos tables when it's time for Parshas Vayera, when we're studying the Akedah, is, okay, Abraham did this thing, so where does that leave us? Are we supposed to follow his lesson? Is that the pious thing to do? Should we all go and sacrifice our children? So what, what's the answer? What answer does Parshish Re'eh give us? It seems to me that Re'eh is contextualizing the Akedah and basically raising the question, are you ready to remain devoted to that relationship with God that you know in your bones, that you know from your past, that you've developed over time? Exactly. Abraham got to know God. God got to know Abraham. We learned in that encounter that God is both good and powerful. That's the tradition of worship that we inherited from Abraham. Mm. So we don't need to go through that test again. We don't need to go through that test of Amuna. We get to serve a God, Asher Yadanu, that we know to be good and powerful. You know, but this is this is a really amazing parallel that, that you've brought up here. And part of what it leaves me with is a feeling of, of a relationship with God that's actually empowering for us, right? Because God's not just out to dominate us. Mm. This, this whole element of da'at means that we are also participants in this relationship and that we get to employ our own morality, our own sense of loyalty, our own sense of faith is something that God is welcoming and inviting and not just forcing upon us. I love that point, Ami. I think you're absolutely right. Because what does it mean for us to know a God? In order for us to discern, to determine whether our God is good or not, we have to use our own moral instincts about what's good and bad. Yes, there are going to be times when our instincts about what's right are going to diverge from God's, but fundamentally, 99 times out of 100, those are meant to be working, functioning instincts. They're necessary at the beginning of the relationship with God, and they're necessary throughout the relationship. And in some way, abandoning the God who you know is abandoning part of yourself too. It seems to me that in Re'e, God is urging us to legitimize our past experiences, mm-hmm. to accept them as as truths that we can trust and rely upon even as we move forward into the future. Hmm, fascinating. All right, Ami, thank you for bantering this back and forth with me. And um, also, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. You know, what do you think of these parallels? Do you find them to be undeniably, irrefutably persuasive? Or at the very least, what did they provoke in you? And, you know, do you think we've nailed the test of the Akeda? Or have we oversimplified it and it's something else altogether? Send us a line at info at alephbeta.org. And you know what, Ami? Actually, I'm reminded that Rabbi Foreman has a very thorough, very fascinating exploration of the Akeda. And I think our, our listeners will enjoy checking it out. So we'll, we'll put a link in the description of this podcast to that series so everyone can go on to alephbeta.org and check it out. And if you haven't yet, again, now is the time. Subscribe to this podcast, rate us five stars, share it with your family and friends, and tune in next week for more Parsha Exploration and Insights. 